Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am coming to you from the podcast studios at Condé Nast with Catherine Legrave, who's a senior editor for Traveler, Sebastian Modak, who's an editor and also a podcast producer. And then we have a special guest via Skype. Uh, it's Lee Barnes from Intrepid Travel. We're going to talk a little bit more about what Lee does and what Intrepid does as we get into things here. My name is Brad Rickman. I'm the digital director at Traveler. And our topic for the week this week is what I'm going to call, and we can debate this if we want, I'm going to call it conscious travel. It also goes by eco-friendly. What other? What are the more palatable sort of forms of this? Green. I green mean, that's, travel, a, that's a green travel. Yeah, I think responsible is probably the big one. Responsible. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Climate change as a subject has been in the news for the last couple of weeks. The United States, much to our chagrin, and I'm not gonna. I'm gonna be frank about this. Pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement last week, and there's been a lot of discussion about this. I don't want to get into what the Paris Climate Agreement is. I think that's been really well covered by the rest of the media. Um, what we're going to talk about here is travel. Whenever we talk about this stuff on Facebook, whenever we post about these kinds of things about responsible travel or eco-friendly travel or climate change, we get a lot of feedback and a lot of it is really great and people engaging and people having lots of things to say and that's terrific. And then we also get a sort of common thread of people complaining and the complaints take two forms one of which I want to take kind of head on because I think it's a premise of our discussion today. And the other of which I also want to speak to just really briefly. The first one is, this isn't a travel story. This is politics. Why are you guys covering this? And I think we can get into this in a little bit of detail, but our point of view on this as an organization and as an editorial group is this is very much a travel story. And it has a huge impact on travelers. It's having an increasing impact every day. That impact is visible. It's palpable. And the implications for the future for people who do like to travel are significant. And people should be aware of them. And it's something for us to be thinking about and taking action on. So I think that's sort of a non-starter. This is a travel story, and we can flesh that out. But, but I think the other complaint that we get from people is, ah, I need a break from politics. All I get is Trump, Trump, Trump. All I get is politics, politics, politics these days. And I come to you guys for the same reasons that I, or at least some of the reasons that I travel, which is to get away from all that stuff and to sort of take a break from it. And that I think is fair. Uh, but I would also say in terms of our coverage, we do 90% let's take you away, and 10% vegetables, uh, if you want to call it that. I don't even think about this as vegetables because I think it's actually kind of cool and fun and great to get into this. But, but I do think that is a compelling argument, and we do listen to people when they say that. We do hear that, but I also think we take care of that. We, we, we are very much a, an organization that is about helping you plan and get away. So in terms of talking about this as a travel story, We've got a lot of this on the site, so we've covered this really well, and I think some of these examples are alarming. The one that I always think of, Seb, and that I think you've written about once or twice is the Great Barrier Reef. I know mm -hmm. you've done at least one piece for us about that. Yeah. Before we go into just to like piggyback on what you were saying, yeah, I do please. think it's important to say, if anything, actually, it's even more relevant to travelers and to traveling than ever. I and I won't, you know, I'll try to veer away from politics by like not naming the periods, but there have been periods in my politically conscious life where there were decisions being made in foreign policy or otherwise, which were not being taken very well in the rest of the world. And I felt it was like, for my own beliefs, for the way I feel, for the way I feel about, you know, engaging with the rest of the world, I felt like it was even more my duty when I was abroad to be a positive ambassador for the United States, you know, to represent this country in a different way than what you're seeing on the news. 
And I feel like it's similar here where it's, you know, if our government has said, hey, we're, we're out, we're not dealing with this existential threat, then it really does come down to all of us individually, including in the decisions we make when we travel and the philosophies we kind of espouse when we travel to do that for our government. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this with a travel ban, kind of being stewards, you know, and doing what you can. And I think travel is a natural intersection for climate change as much as people think that they're not really related, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. sorry, Lee, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say, they're, they're fundamentally um, linked. I suppose the easiest way to look at it is if we don't have an environment, we don't have travel. Um, so the very basic nature of travel, if you can't go and see the rhinos, you can't go and see the wildlife in Africa, tourism to Africa is going to slow down and stop. So, you know, without the environment, as simple as that, there's not going to be a travel industry to talk about. Yeah. And so to get back into the, the specific kind of case studies, you mentioned the Great Barrier Reef. And Lee, feel free to chime in because I'm sure you guys operate trips out to the Great Barrier Reef. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the latest story we ran was from April which was based on a a survey of the reef that was being done and which showed that a full two-thirds of the reef, this is, you know, the longest, largest living creature on Earth, is suffering from what's called coral bleaching, which is when water temperatures rise, this algae plankton that live in the coral that basically give it its color, they die or they are expelled from the reef, from the coral, and the coral turns bone white. And it's not dead yet. It can recover if things stabilize. But the trajectory we're on right now doesn't show much stabilization. It shows warmer and warmer waters every year. And there were publications that came out saying this is an obituary for the Great Barrier Reef. It's dead. That's a little premature. And I think it's a little fatalistic, too, because there are things we can do to help slow this down. But the current state of it is that this 1,491-mile being is in danger of dying. And I'll just be the voice of the the sort of like self-interested person, right? Like, even if you don't care that this is an organism that's dying, right? Okay, that's fine, whatever. Species come and species go. I'm not advocating that, but I'm just saying that's certainly one position one could take, right? And plenty of people do. But guess what? It's also one of the greatest diving spots on planet Earth. And one of the most spectacular locations. I'll say snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef. I did it when I was I was living in Australia. I was six years old, five years old. I mean, like, who still has vivid memories from that age? I mean, I mostly don't. But it was one of my first and still enduring memories is getting into that water and seeing the Great Barrier Reef for the first time, which a lot of people are just not going to be able to do now. But even if people say, like, I don't care about the Great Barrier Reef, look at Venice. You know, they're talking about floodgates because levels are rising. Or you can talk about the Dead Sea, which is shrinking by 3.3 feet a year. I mean, basically any example around the world, the Alps, if you go skiing, Mm -hmm. snow melt. Yeah, totally. Hey, man, I, I would say, like, bring it back home. Miami. Yeah. You want to go to Miami in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. You want your kids to go to Miami. You want your your grandkids to go to Miami. You want to come visit New York City and go to Times Square. That may not be on the menu. A certain club called Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Well, we're seeing them in hit home in Toronto at the moment. Like um, we've had unseasonably wet start to summer. Um, One of our main tourist attractions is Toronto Island, and it's currently not open due to flooding, and it doesn't look like it's going to be open until August. So there's real tangible things happening right now in people's backyards, which make it more tangible and more real. Yeah, I mean, and for you guys at Intrepid, what 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 are you seeing based on these 
sort of trips and expeditions that you organize. Well, first, maybe, Lee, could you just set the stage, like, what is Intrepid? What do you guys do? Just a little bit more basic before we get into those. Yeah, um, sure, guys. So Intrepid Travel, um, we're a global adventure travel company. We've been taking travelers off the beaten track to discover the world's most amazing places for about 28 years now. We have over a 1,000 trips to 100 countries um, on every continent on Earth, so whether that's uh, Antarctica, Nepal, Mexico, Italy, um, and every trip is designed to truly experience the local culture and to do that in a responsible way. So we really try and meet the local people, try local food, use local transport, stay in local um, accommodation. And we're a world leader in responsible travel. Um, we were one of the first providers to ban elephant rides. Uh, now over 100 tour operators have done that. So a big focus of our business is responsible and local travel. How are you guys attacking this? How is it influencing the way that you structure trips for travelers? And I'm curious too, what are you hearing from the marketplace? Like what are people coming to you and saying? So I suppose from the marketplace point of view, we really find that our initiatives lead to repeat customers. It's generally not the reason why a customer books with us, but once they experience our trip, it's why we have such incredible feedback and why people book again. So it's quite interesting in the purchase decision of the consumer that it's generally once they've experienced something and then that product is very responsible um, and you know does travel in a sustainable way. So we get really strong feedback post. Since about 2010, since 2010, we've been fully carbon neutral. Um, and that has taken all the carbon that we produce on our trips and also our offices and also our business travel. Um, and we carbon offset that. So um, we've invested around 1.6 million in energy, renewable energy projects since 2010. So that's, I suppose, a big thing. How we do that on the ground is that local transport. Like I think a really big thing, if you're asking someone, how do they travel responsibly or sustainably? It's really trying to have that local aspect. So eat local food, use local transport, almost local everything to really ensure that the experience that you're having and then the effect you're having on the environment around you is as minimal as possible. And I think that local element is really, really important. Unpack that for just a second. Why is local better? Yeah, a number, a number of reasons. Obviously, any export or quite large imports of any scale is going to have a carbon element to that. If you're using non-local transport, so say if you're looking to fly, if you're looking to fly from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City, the carbon element of a flight is going to be much greater than slow transport or deliberate travel. So if you were to take a train um, or a bus for that journey, so using that local transport is really important. You're obviously sharing the load as well because there's you know more people on that particular form of transport. And then also local food. You know it's produced locally. Um, it's supporting the local economy, um, and that's really uh, helping as well. One of the things I thought you said was interesting was about carbon because I think people think about that on a huge scale. But if I'm traveling and I want to know, which I think is really cool, like how much carbon I produce, I can actually go and enter that online and then find out the monetary value of that and donate that somewhere. How do you do that? So um, you can do it a few places. I usually do it on sustainable travel and then um, it'll Like sustainabletravel.org? Uh, sustainabletravel.org, right. I don't know, Lee, you probably have other sites as well, um, but you select like flying, driving, hotel stay, and then just enter your details from that and you can change the currency or whatever. And then you can, you know, you can donate that if you want um, and 
Yeah, I'd recommend checking out goldstandard.org as well. And, and they're a standard and certification body that helps ensure that climate element and that dollar goes to development funding. So the goldstandard.org is a really good place as well. But I, I think to that point as well, it's really about the consumer or us as people taking that responsibility. You know, you've gone and made the decision to check on that website. I think it's really important that people take responsibility to, you know, look at their trip. Can they carbon offset their flights? Is that tour company or that hotel they're staying with responsible? So I think that that's a great point in, in being responsible and taking ownership um, on what you can do yourself. I have a question for you, Lee, for, for your customers. Do you find that you're having people come to you explicitly kind of saying that it's because they want, they're concerned about the environment or is it more because of, you know, these experiences you offer that are very kind of on the ground, very local, led by local guides? Because I feel like, and I've, I've been guilty of this too, I've taken a flight because it was convenient um, rather than jumping on a train or something before as well. It's hard to think of the environmental effect of your travel when you're traveling because all you want is the best experience you could possibly have, especially when you're investing money in it. So like, I'm wondering if you find that people are more and more being kind of explicitly motivated by environmental consciousness. Yeah, it's, it's hard for us to quantify. We, we definitely know that customers give us feedback post-trip that they love that part of the experience. So we definitely know after they've been on a trip that they've really enjoyed that responsible, local, sustainable element of the tours. I suppose that the biggest sort of oh, qualitative evidence is that since 2010, when we did launch it, there was obviously that same feedback that you guys touched on, you know, you've been political. Um, I just want to focus on, on travel. We've grown exponentially as a company. So, you know, if you just take our performance as a business since 2010 to where we stand in 2017, since we've done that, obviously this is not the main reason, but people are choosing to travel with us because of the stance that, that we do take. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we are a free market capitalistic culture, right? And you as a consumer can have a huge influence on markets and, and an influence on outcomes by how you spend your money and the places in which you spend your money. So I think all of these tools that we're talking about today and the resources and the approaches that we're talking about today are empowering for people, even if they feel as though, you know, major institutions are perhaps not on board with them. I'm going to introduce like a little a metronomic note here. We have a piece up on the site that is about 12 places on earth that are major destinations, probably on your bucket list, at least some of them, on most people's bucket list, and that are actually disappearing. And disappearing, we mean metaphorically, but also in reality, in some sense, that these places are in danger of not being what they have been historically and not being um, what you might be looking for, uh, the reasons that you put them on your bucket list. We talked about the Dead Sea. We talked about the Alps. We talked about Venice and the Great Barrier Reef, the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this, obviously, a huge bucket list destination, so to speak, for lots and lots of people. But also, just if you care about this sort of thing, you know, an important resource for the Earth generally. I mean, just for oxygen. Breathing. If you like <laughs> yeah. breathing, this is something you, you ought to care about. The Amazon. That's our note for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also like if you drink wine, Napa Valley and the Rhone Valley. The because Rhone the temperatures Valley. are rising and your, your favorite wine will not exist. Yeah. Lee was talking about this in a different context, but weather patterns are changing, weather patterns are changed by climate change. And what that means is that temperatures fluctuate, weather patterns are shifted, and that has a huge impact on things like agriculture, 
which just to, again, bring it back to a very self-centered place, if that's where you want to come from, if you like some of the best wines on the earth, you might not be able to get those wines at some point in the future if we don't take some action here, if you don't go to goldstandard.org and figure out how your, <laughs> how your carbon offsets are working. What other tools can we give to people? What other things can people think about? So someone once told me, and, and Lee, chime in here because I'd love to get your feedback. When you're looking at a hotel, look for like a responsible travel, a good steward section, because chances are if people have donated money or made an effort to be green, it'll be listed there. So that's sort of a good first step. But how do you, how do you go about choosing a, a green hotel? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I suppose it is that like looking for them to have best practices. Also to, um, again, we come back to that local aspect. We try not to stay in big chain uh, hotels. Obviously it's unavoidable in certain cities and locations around the world. But again, really trying to work with locally owned and operated um, accommodation, I think that's a really big one because it just ensures that your money is staying locally, that they actually care about the place they're in as well. What are the yeah. criteria that you apply to a hotel? What are those best practices? Yeah, I'd have to get back to exactly on what they are. Um, I suppose I'm very much at the top level. We try and work with local sustainable accommodation, but as so far as the actual dot points, five guidelines we use, I'd have to get back to you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's hard for example, like the whole LEED certification thing for buildings, for example, where there are these benchmarks, which are great, you know, that you can be certified as LEED compliant, which means you're energy efficient to a certain extent, or kind of certified as an eco lodge, as a lot of places in sub-Saharan Africa are doing these days, which is great. It's all great. But it is worrying sometimes when you see it happen as like a kind of requirement, a rubric that they need to hit, and then it's like their job's done, Right. Our office building is LEED certified, but you've seen how the AC blares the, in this place. The you've World seen, Trade Center tower is LEED certified. It is LEED certified. There's a little, if you look at our entranceway, there's a little uh, plaque that says it's LEED certified. But I cannot imagine that this building is very energy efficient. So it makes me, how can you tell the real Eco Lodge versus the, the one who got the rubric down and, and felt like their job was done? Uh, yeah, good question. I suppose for us, from our point of view, it's quite frustrating seeing some of this take place and just the, I suppose, the inactivity from the travel industry at large, whether it is lodges getting a certification. You know, we're, we're a member of the uh, United Nations Global Compact and, you know, that's, that's signing up to, you know, the principles uh, of the UN. Um, so I think, you know, the five Ps um, of the, so it's like people, planet, prosperity. There's only six US companies that are signed up to this, six US travel companies. That's astronomical when you think about the size of the travel industry in the USA alone. And there's only six, as far as I've been able to find on the website, only six companies that are signed up to the UNGC. Mm. Um, so there's a frustration there that are there even those six signed up properly to activate and do this? Right. But what is the travel industry doing in the USA to take a stand and make sure that those certifications are real and that they are something that we should be actually following? It's it's sort of alarming and a bit frustrating um, that as a travel industry, we don't have more leaders on this and people taking a stand on what should mean, what certified should mean, what goals we should be reaching for, what should our targets be, and not just settling it that certification as a, as a tick box, but actually striving to have a better travel industry that's helping the environment. Yeah, and it's frustrating too because 
you don't think of the travel industry as like an industry that needs to change drastically because of environmental stressors. Like you first think, of course, of like the energy industry or the construction industry or the automobile industry. You know, like you don't immediately think of travel, but it is obviously it has a huge carbon yeah. footprint. I mean, air travel alone. And then you see these companies. We have a piece about a startup called Zunum Aero which just got a big investment from JetBlue Ventures and a couple of other VC funds that's trying to build commercially viable electric planes versus the current kind of gas guzzlers that we have. And those are kind of just treated as like these pipe dreams, you know, that are like, oh, that's cool in a future far, far away. Maybe we'll have some carbon neutral planes out there. But it hasn't been a priority. In the meantime, we're using the same, essentially the same technology we've been using for 60 years. But I think it's kind of what Brad said about money talking, right? So if these six companies only exist, how can we raise awareness of this? How can we, you know, make sure that they're taking notice? Because if the consumers aren't asking for change, they're not going to do something that's more expensive for them. And I guess it goes I mean, back that's to, the again, pessimist like, in me, but. it goes back again, too, to what Brad was saying about how we can't just depend on the giant institutions in our society. We've got to yeah, make some decisions I, ourselves. This actually is encouraging to me, right? Because you look at a company like Tesla, and sure, Tesla is an extremely small niche at the moment, but when the Model 3 comes out, right, and you have a car that suddenly is sort of priced competitively with, you know, midsize sedans, or more competitively with midsize sedans, which are the biggest, uh, other than trucks, like, which is a sad side of the story, but, you know, is a, is, a, is a huge market. It's a huge market, and suddenly people have that as a choice, and they can spend their money in a way that expresses that value system and in a way that actually makes a difference in a small way over time in aggregate, right? right. You have to understand that, and people have to think that this is not about grand gestures at some level. It's about the small little things because it's a, an accretion of the small little things that create the problem in the first place, right? It's not like some giant bomb went off and suddenly there's climate change. It's right. like an accretion over decades and centuries. And so the, the, the solution to it is not going to be one giant thing in a, or, or a magic bullet. It's going to be these small sort of steps. So I do think it's encouraging that someone is developing. And I also think if you are really going to be forward thinking, if you are an investor, if you are somebody who tries to spot the next thing coming, just like battery technology, I think eventually there's going to be electric planes. Yeah. I think, I, I don't, I mean, there's just sort of no question about it. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of money. It's a matter of resources, resources yeah. right? But it'll happen. Somebody like an Elon Musk, I mean, if you had said the same thing about cars, you know, 20 years ago, there was no talk of this kind of thing. It was science fiction. Yeah. And it's reality now. I've ridden in them. You know, they're great. They're like normal cars. And I just, I, I think that, that change is inevitable whether it happens because of market forces or climate change or consciousness or a combination of all those things, which is the more likely thing. We talk about the road trip and we talk about um, electric cars, self-driving cars and electric cars are two different things, but they've kind of been conflated in a lot of cases. And I think that we think about the, through the classic American road trip a lot. Summer's coming up. This is something we talk about. Wired has done coverage of this. We've done coverage of this. The expectation is that this is actually going to change and it's going to be a reality that not just will your road trip be driverless, but it will be in an electric vehicle. That will be a much different kind of experience. I'm dropping another one in. Here's another endangered place. Wait. Yeah, here's another endangered place. <laughs> we all okay. have another endangered place we want to <laughs> I've say. got one. I've got one. Okay. Glacier National Park aye, aye, will aye. soon have no glaciers in wow. it. Wow. Then it'll just be called 
National Park. And and listeners of the podcast will know, regular listeners will know that I had a huge sort of National Parks visit, and we are huge on the National Parks. We're huge fans. We cover them a lot. Glacier is considered by park aficionados as one of the gems, right? It's one of the, the places that, one of the parks that really stand out. Yeah, and the worst of these glaciers have seen reductions up to 85% in their size since 1966. And basically the scientists who conducted this study are saying that there'll be a little ice left after a couple more decades, and there'll be absolutely none at all by the end of this century. Are they going to have to change the name? They might. No more Glacier National Park? I mean, at this rate, my kids or grandkids won't know what a glacier is. Won't ever have heard the word. It'll be something from the Ice Age. I'm sure you guys saw the photo getting around the internet the last couple of days of that crack in Antarctica that's forming yeah. as well. The size of Delaware, right? A yeah. glacier the size of Delaware, yeah. Do you guys do tours there uh, at yeah. Intrepidly? You do? Yeah, yeah, we, we do um, tours to both the Arctic and Antarctica. And it's something that has been growing pretty aggressively um, as a part of the sector the last 10 years. Um, and we, we now carbon offset all of our Antarctica and Arctic trips as well. When news like that happens, do you guys see a spike in inquiries? Uh, you see a spike in web traffic, that's for sure. Like you definitely see a spike in general interest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so th- there's definitely more search traffic and more people discussing those destinations right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I want to, Antarctica is going to be, I was reading an article about how Antarctica is going to be just completely like green pretty soon. I'd like to see it while it still has some ice left. I think, I think most people would like to see it while it still has some ice left. Yikes. Otherwise, it's just going to be like Iceland, <laughs> which is not covered with... It'll be the next new Brooklyn, I guess. Oh, my <laughs> God. Like we, like we need another one. Um, I'm perfectly fine with the Brooklyn that we have. Okay, so a couple of other things. One of the things that you can do as a traveler, and certainly not the only uh, by any stretch, but is travel to urban environments. And we have a piece that we have done that gathers up. It's based on the Green City Index that gathers up the most eco-friendly cities in the world. And one of those is Vancouver, Canada. So I'm going to drop these in as well, giving shout outs to the urban environments. But like, Catherine, what is it about urban environments that makes them good eco-consumers, I suppose? It's a concentration. Um, I think it's also the way that they choose to delegate their transportation options, waste and water management, and environmental governments, right? Yeah. Governance, they have more oversight over that. And it's like a more closed, constricted system already, right? So your addition to it is going to be less intrusive than you flying into a isolated village in Greenland or something, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obvious things like public transportation, yeah. right? Like huge numbers of people, that big percentages of the population take some form of collective transportation. And like your addition to that already crowded subway car isn't going to have a giant carbon footprint Right, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't have yeah. much of an incremental impact. But then also things like people living on top of one another, as we do here in New York City, and the fact that things are very concentrated in terms of energy use. So heating... Mm-hmm. In New York City, apartment is actually very efficient compared to a lot of things. It doesn't seem that way from the inside a lot of the time, but it is because when you are stacked one on top of each other the way that we are here, the heating that goes into the bottom floor rises. If you look at old 
kind of like apartment buildings in Philadelphia. I lived in an apartment building in a very old part of Philadelphia for a, a short period of time, and they would put the stoves in the basement of the building, which would be like three, four stories, because the heat would rise up. Heat rises, obviously, and the heat would rise up, and, and you could more efficiently heat the rest of the building just by putting the actual cooking stove in the basement, and that became the heat for the mm. for the entire structure. And the same thing, similar things happen in apartment buildings and tall buildings sort of generally. So I think there's a lot of things about the kind of concentration of resources, and I do think sort of centralization of services is another thing where garbage collection, recycling, all of these things – are closer together, they're more compressed, and that reduces the amount of energy that's required to actually carry them out, even though it seems like a huge task in a place like New York City. And there's also a lot of places who are doing a much, much, much better job of it than we are, especially now considering the latest news. A lot of countries that through national policy are doing a much better job. Yeah, you had a gallery about this, and and I kind of have two questions about this. What are they doing well, and what can people that live in cities in the U.S. do to sort of mobilize similar change yeah. to make it attractive to travelers? Well, so for starters, basically, so this is some background. It's something called the Climate Change Performance Index, which is released every year, which looks at how countries, based on their policy, based on their emissions, based on their stated goals and where they're at with those goals, are performing. But what's interesting about it is that it's, like, relative. It's all relative to, like, how they're doing from the year before. It's not like net emissions or anything like that. So it's really the top performing countries in the world right now. And they're also looking at things like the potential for policy changes based on environment and whatever else. So real quick, I'll just run through it. Here are like 10 that are doing great. What's the piece called, Seb, so people can find it? 10 countries doing the most to fight climate change. There you go. Spoiler, the U.S. is not one of them. <laughs> in fact, in, in last year's rankings, they're ranked around somewhere between 30 and 40. Was it 43? Or 43, maybe. Yeah. It's low. And this is actually, it's not even all the countries in the world. This, they only look at the countries that emit 90% of the world's carbon emissions. Okay. So basically seeing what those countries are doing to fix their own problems. So we don't want people to feel bad about that, maybe a little bit bad. Feel bad we want you to feel like competitive <laughs> about that. We want you to win this race. Yeah, and uh, you should also be aware that this, the 2017 report, every report is released every November. So the 2017 report was released November 2016. A lot has happened since then. And the U.S. ranking is about to slip considerably. Okay, all right. Who's on the list? Denmark. Okay. Who was at number one, or the equivalent of number one, uh, for the last five years has slipped because basically they've reneged on a lot of the promises they made. Ah. But they're still relatively high up. Belgium. Belgium, you know, hosts the European Union. The European Union has set these very ambitious goals for 2020. And Belgium kind of has a duty to follow through with them as the headquarters for that European Union. Portugal. Portugal had a horrible economic recession for a while there in 2008, 2009, 2010. And part of their kind of bounce back has been investing very heavily in green technologies and green energy. So they're doing well. Malta came in there. Malta. Um, All these are great destinations, by the way. Yeah. So <laughs> like, if you, you want to support your money to Malta. Put your money where your heart you is or your conscience is. These are um, great places to visit. Luxembourg is up there. Yep. Also a great place to visit. Here's the wild card. Mm -hmm. 
Morocco. Morocco. Morocco is the only, essentially, yeah, the only non-European non-European right? country to make this list. Wow. Um, great destination. Yeah, yeah exactly. Great destination. And part of what gave Morocco points is they've recently committed to basically using these amazing alternative energy resources that they have. I mean, you think about Morocco, you think about basically vast stretches of empty land that can be filled with solar panels. You think about the mountains that are great for, for wind turbines and, you know, these, these empty spaces for that. You've got this huge coastline for hydroelectric. So they're investing a lot in that. You've got Cyprus, the U.K., which celebrated a, its first 24-hour period without any coal-powered power plants in wow. April. And they're trying to cut it all down by 2020, I believe. That's remarkable, if only because the U.K. as a sort of center of the Industrial Revolution was built by coal in many ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sweden. And that's – here's a fun fact about Sweden. Sweden <laughs> is – The one. Sweden <laughs> no, is – No, I'm kidding. Sweden, Sweden is, is so, so much fun. Sweden is so good at recycling that they need to import garbage yeah. to power their recycling plants. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. And then what took the number one spot is France. And I think a lot of that is because of the leadership role they've taken in the Paris Climate Accords. Um, and then... But here's an interesting note there. France also relies heavily on nuclear power. Yeah. Which is not a fossil fuel power. Yeah. Right? It's also not necessarily entirely green. But they have committed to like greener technologies than that. And here's a fun fact, though. Although Paris topped the list, they're actually ranked number four because ranks one to three are empty. What? Because Ooh. nobody is doing enough <laughs> to combat climate change. <laughs> that, that's a bold statement. How did they work that out mathematically? They have a point system, and nobody reached the points needed to get gold, silver, or bronze. All right. I'm going to drop another metronomic note here. Key West, also in danger of disappearing. Hmm. So if you like Key West, Key West is a lot of fun. That's a great place. Let's let's uh, at least raise a glass for Key West. We've got a great piece of out. Pour one Florida out Keys Key road trip. We do, and it's road trip season. Exactly, so it is, but... May not I be think, able to I think take it's that. Safe yeah. to say, if you're a fan of islands at all, you might be in trouble. Yeah. Can I add another one, or are we saving them to like parcel them out? Uh, Speaking of islands, like no, I'll save it. I'll up. save it. I'll save it. Oh, you got an island? Okay. Uh, and Lee, the stuff Seb was talking about. How much does that enter for you guys? How much do you think about that? How much do you look into that sort of thing? Um, is that a factor when you guys are putting trips together or working with destinations? I suppose we're trying to go to every country on earth. So um, our main focus is changing the way people see the world. So we're trying to go to all the countries regardless of where they sit on any environmental impact scale. But when we travel there, we're trying to ensure that we leave as, as small a footprint as possible. Um, funny you mentioned the islands. We're seeing a massive boom in all island tourism, Iceland, Cuba, Japan, Sri Lanka. It's quite an interesting touch point to start talking about those destinations from an environmental um, point of view and, and Iceland's been such a hot topic um, over the last 18 months but um, yeah island tourism and the extremely popular but with that comes uh, seeing some inherent challenges yeah I wonder if it's like a last desperate attempt to see them <laughs> <laughs> well another place that's disappearing the Maldives speaking the of Maldives, islands yeah. right 
beautiful the, the lowest lying country in the world. Beautiful destination. It's it's on our site for a lot of many honeymoon, honeymoon. beach fa- exactly, yeah. but completely disappearing. Like it's at risk of completely being overtaken by water. Um, so much so that the officials there have said, "Let's make it carbon neutral by I think it's 2019." That is ambitious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've seen Bhutan talk about that as well. I think they're. Right. Um, I saw that. Oh, I don't know, Luki talking about being um, carbon negative or, you know, doing more than just um, offsetting their carbon. So it's definitely something that destinations are, are looking at and talking about. And it makes sense. I mean, especially those who face literally a threat to their existence. Yeah, yeah. I, I, sp- I suppose we've touched on a lot of pessimistic stuff, but I suppose there's also quite an opportunistic, exciting point of view as well, that there is scope to be doing a hell of a lot better and that you know, we touched on those green cities like Vancouver. There are a lot of technologies. If we were all able to implement them, we could be doing a hell of a lot better. Um, you know, there's technology now where you can have a coffee cup that is reusable in the fact that it's a seed. And if you plant it, a tree can grow from that coffee cup. So there's technologies and, and things that we could be doing. So there's, as much as we probably talked about some of the, you know, more pessimistic outcomes of it, if we were able to enable everyone, and get things happening in these destinations, we could be making such a positive impact. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, because yeah. I feel like I was falling down a dark <laughs> hole. Just yeah. Yeah. You, went down, you went down the hole. Other cities doing great things. Curitiba, Brazil. It's consistently ahead of the game when it comes to being green. Um, they've got rapid transit, first rapid transit bus system in the 60s they developed, and they are working on a metro system now that is going to make them even more efficient. So... That's the other metronomic note, the positive metronomic note. That's a good, nice positive one. Yeah. Catherine, you did a piece for us that we have updated a couple of times called How to Reduce Your Carbon Footprint as a Traveler. Mm -hmm. These are really basic things that are achievable by anybody who's traveling. What are some of those things? So we talked about offsetting your carbon, which I think is a big one. Um, Looking at an eco-friendly hotel or sort of choosing your hotel carefully. And Lee talked about, you know, trying a tour, working with local groups, eating locally, working with local hotels, which is really important given that, you know, tour operators who are kind of the best in their class leave a fair chunk of that money in the country sort of to help with that economic development. Another small thing, which I kind of like, um, and some people, you know, may say, like, that's not going to make a difference, but it's bringing, like, reusable stuff with you. You know, bringing a, you know, you go to the grocery store here, but... Bring a reusable bag. You know, think about the amount of waste you're leaving in the country. And there's great companies doing that too. Like you can get like backpacks that have solar grids. You know, you can get filtration systems like LifeStraw. You know, there's lots of things that we can be doing ourselves that are going to make it a much more yeah. responsible and sustainable experience. I feel like I've seen a lot of these lately in terms of like just very, very personal techie kind of things. The solar charger for your phone, yeah. which is obviously a thing you're bringing with you all the time when you travel now. And instead of having to plug it in, it's more than just a convenience. It's actually a gesture in this direction, which is to charge it by the sun. And if like reusable, there's reusable bags that can be, you know, folded and shrunk down to the size of a keychain. If Rwanda can ban plastic bags from its entire nation, you can ban plastic bags from your carry-on. And pack light, you know. The lighter the aircraft, the less fuel it burns. I mean, it's a simple reason. And I thought that was very, that was one of the more interesting ones of these. It's, it's like, yeah. that's something everybody can do. It's tiny. It's really true. Yeah. There's a statistic here. It's like the average European generates 10 tons of emissions a year and the American, average American, 19 tons, which is crazy if you think about it, due to flying. You know, so pack lighter, 
choose airlines that are fuel efficient and are looking in these green technologies. We have a few stories on our site. Fuel efficient airlines are like Alaska and Frontier and Spirit, and there are a few studies every year that look at this. Um, you wrote a story back in July last year about a South African Airways <laughs> flight that <laughs> tobacco completed right? a flight entirely powered by tobacco. Wow. Yeah. That's Bio-fuel. pretty amazing. How does that work? What, yeah, what was that? It's what was the story there? Tobacco in the form of biofuel, right? Wow. Um, in the form of biojet y- fuel. <laughs> yeah. Like that's remarkable. That's that's something quite other than Willie Nelson's bus. But like South African Airways is basically trying to shift towards <clears throat> more percentage of its power being it's not it's not 100% biofuel, but they, you know, by partially fueling it through this tobacco, which they have excess of. And and that's amazing. And Alaska, it is not enough just to do the carbon offset. You've really got to find renewable energy as well. So that's amazing. Yeah. And Alaska Airlines did one with uh, trees. Oh, right. Yeah. I think you're talking about that's a story cool. I wrote, and I'm talking about a story yeah. you wrote. <laughs> wow. Shaking hands I across feel the, the aisle here. I feel the love. <laughs> I feel the love. Um, even down to the airplane that you take, right? Like the A380s. And the Dreamliners are just more fuel efficient. Right. Some of the newer aircraft. Some of the newer aircraft. Um, Obviously, (laughs) airlines are investing in this for their own interests, which is it cuts costs for them. But it's also a good thing because it saves the use of uh, fossil fuels overall. Right. So thinking about that is worthwhile as well. Again, South Africa also later last year unveiled the continent of Africa's first airport that's entirely run by solar power. So it's just, you know, it's a. It's an airport in a kind of isolated part of South Africa, so the entire surrounding area is just covered with solar panels, and that's what powers the entire airport. So if you were going to give people a checklist of things, you know, by way of wrapping up here, uh, things that they can do, things that they should be thinking about. I'm curious, too, Catherine, I was going to ask you earlier, Airbnb versus hotels. This is something we talk about a lot. Is there any sense of, you know, which of these two things are a better choice for the environment? Does it make any difference? Um, I think it comes down to the Airbnb and the hotel. I mean, painting it with broad strokes is kind of hard. It's kind of what Lee and I were talking about earlier about looking, um, you know, on hotel tab, things they're doing right. It's also choosing, you know, these urban centers, these Airbnbs that have recycling or maybe they have solar panels or some of these green initiatives that we're talking about. So it's, like you said, Brad, it's the small choices that add up. And I think it's also really important to say, and maybe we should have said this earlier, that you don't have to sacrifice much while traveling to be more eco-friendly or more conscious or more responsible of a traveler. Like, you can still have a pretty amazing, luxurious vacation on a safari in sub-Saharan Africa while while still supporting something that's being supportive of its environment. You know, some of the lo- best ones. Like some of the best ones, some of the most exclusive ones, because part of what makes them so responsible is that they're not dealing with humongous volumes of people coming through. You right. know? Right. Um, and you can have a really rewarding experience in Vietnam taking a train from Hanoi to Hoi An versus flying. You know, So like... This doesn't have to cut into your the joy of travel or like why you're traveling in the first place. If anything, it can enhance it. Well, I think this is kind of what Lee is after and what Intrepid is doing, which is that the ways people are traveling these days and the things they're looking for when they travel have a lot of overlap with the things that are helpful in being more responsible. People want to eat 
the local food. They want to experience the local yep. culture. They want to meet they, local people. They want to meet. They want to immerse themselves in the reality of the situation rather than some sort of pre-programmed or, or encapsulated experience. And I think as people travel for that reason, and we certainly know that from our own reporting and from understanding, you know, our readers and why they travel and how they travel, I think it fits together really well. It's a nice confluence between those two things. That's yeah. why it's why Intrepid is growing the way that Lee's describing it. Yeah, and we're seeing it too. That, that point exactly right. People are traveling for experiences. So, you know, I'd even argue even more um, that people can have an amazing experience while um, traveling. You don't have to sacrifice it. I'd hazard to say that trying a local beer or having that um, local meal cooked for you is probably going to be a better experience totally. than um, if, if you didn't do that, if you, um, you know, at an all-inclusive, you know, you're definitely going to understand what it's like to live local. local. You're going to have a more in-depth conversation, learn what life is like there, probably have a better meal. Um, and I'd hazard a guess probably a little bit more fun and take you outside of your comfort zone too, which is always good for you as a, as a person. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it's why we do it, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Why, it's why we do it. I think that would be like my underlying thing, kind of what you said earlier, Brad. It's small things add up, right? Yeah. You know, back to your point about Airbnb, it's like stay at a place with a, um energy-efficient appliance or a place that has um, like a single-use toiletry or you know, Seb, you and I think we have a debate on our site about this. Like, should you reuse the same hotel towel? Stuff like this. I, I noticed that should. Mark, and yeah. I'm going to shout out, Mark gave credit. <laughs> it's easy credit. to talk about this because yeah. he's not here. Well, credit where credit <laughs> is due, Mark helped produce this episode. So he has actually put his energy behind it, but no pun intended. But Mark's point is I go on vacation or I go and stay in a hotel and there are things that I'm looking for that are not like what I have at home. And I think that can take many forms. And I think you can do that and you can go, you know, to the all-inclusive and there's a place for that. And you can choose one that's doing it better or one that's doing it worse. And you can spend your dollars in one place versus spending your dollars in another place. And by the same token, you know, you can travel for that other reason, which is I really want to immerse myself in a place and mm. I don't want the bubble and I don't want the filter. I really want to get to know the place that I'm going to. I think it's why a lot of people travel these days. Certainly all of us have done that. And I also have had the, I also have the other kind of vacation as well. But, um, but I think Mark's argument fits into that, that I want a different experience than what I get at home. And that's part of what he's saying about the towels. But, but there are but, different ways to do that. I'm going to yeah, get that having the local meal with someone versus, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that's the thing I'm going to remember. I'm He's not, not gonna, here to defend himself. I know. So. That's why I'm going nuts. <laughs> I, I'm not going to remember. You're taking that, full advantage. I'm, not, I'm taking full advantage of the Show fact up that next he's time, not Mark. here. Um, I'm not going to remember that my towel was maybe slightly damp when I needed to wash my hands after I took a shower. I am going to remember the local meal I had in a small, you know, shack in Saigon. So, like, Pick your battles, I guess, but like, just Absolutely. reuse your damn towel. Well, it depends where you're, where you're even traveling, you know? Like if you're trekking um, up to Everest Base Camp, do you want to carry an extra towel? Like, do you, <laughs> do you carry a towel, you know? So yeah, where, where are you going to have the experience? I think the key point there is having that experience and that's going to be the thing you remember. Not, ha not using a coffee cup or, um, paying a little bit extra to carbon offset your flight, you're not going to remember those things. You, you're going to remember right. the great experience and the, the local meal, that first time you saw Everest. They're the things that will stay with you. 
not the fact that I walked for six, seven hours a day. I don't really remember that being a, a tough slog. I remember seeing Everest for the first time. Um, so you remember the experience. It's just the little things you've got to do on the way to ensure that we can keep having those experiences. 100%. And I think the feeling that you get knowing that you are, I think when you go to these places, I can certainly say this from the national parks, when you go to these places and you really do experience them, the value of making sure that that can happen again and again and that they stick around is palpable to you. You feel it. It's visceral. Absolutely. You know, and so it becomes easier to do these small things that you need to do. I just want to go on the record as saying, sorry, Mark, you could feel free to hit back at me <laughs> tweet next, storm. Time, next time you're on a podcast and I'm not. He's so going to tweet storm you. <laughs> he's going to tweet storm me. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Lee, for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Um, really appreciate it. You guys can find Intrepid Travel on the internets and uh, see the good work that they're doing. This is also one of those podcasts where Mary's going to kill me, but we, we, we will gather up all of the various resources and recommendations, and we'll give some real specifics that people can refer to, give you a reference points for the things that we've been talking about and some things that we haven't quite got to yet, um, because I do think there's a lot out there. There's a lot going on. There are a lot of people offering services and tools. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. And you can visit us, of course, at cntraveler.com, where you will find much coverage of this ongoing. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do, I know you're gonna, tweet at us. <laughs> and I know the first person's going to tweet, somebody's going to tweet, like, why stay away from politics, blah, blah, blah. We already addressed that, so point made, and we ain't going to. But uh, do send us feedback and do review us on iTunes. We really do appreciate it. Um, we have had people writing in, giving us suggestions, asking for advice. We do respond to these things. Mark in particular, just to give props to Mark, who's been be <laughs> beaten up by Seb. Mark is great about uh, responding to people um, and giving them tips and so forth. Where can people find you guys at Intrepid Travel? Lee, where are you guys on the internet? Uh, simply that, just www.intrepidtravel.com, and you can find our thousands of tours online and then also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Great. Seb? I'm on all the things at Seb Modak, S-E-B-M-O-D-A-K. Catherine? And I'm KJ LaGrave um, on most things as well. K-J-L-A-G-R-E-V-E. <laughs> most and things. On most things. Not Friendster. <laughs> <laughs> and let me know what green cities you like visiting. I would be very interested to hear that. Yeah, that's a great point. Send us suggestions about this stuff. We'd love to hear about resources we don't know about. We'd love to, we will get them back out to people and make them available to people if you send them to us. Or great experiences that you've had, that kind of thing. I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.